I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 386. Look, folks, you cannot imagine what it means to me to say I am recording the introduction to this show in New Orleans, Louisiana. I have wanted to come here since I was a little boy. The first concert I ever went to, I went to with my grandfather, and it was a concert by Pete Fountain and Al Hurt, two New Orleans staples from back in the day. And ever since that moment when I was a small kid, I don't know how old I was, maybe 9 or 10, something like that, 11, I have wanted to come to New Orleans, and I am now 38 years old. And earlier today, July 2nd, as I'm recording this, 2012, I finally set foot on the soil of New Orleans. It is it is amazing to me. It is like my moon landing. I am so thrilled. I'm staying in a, a fantastic little apartment, which is uh, empty for a few days because the owners are on tour and various things. I've already had a vegan banh mi sandwich at the Lost Love Lounge, and uh, I- I'm just in love. I am never leaving this city. It's amazing. It is. Uh, I haven't even seen anything yet, and I already know I want to be here. So here's what I want you to do. If you get a chance, when you're done listening to this show, head over to jasoncrane.org because I have posted some photos and poems from my arrival in New Orleans, including a poem I wrote at the Lost Love Lounge. I'm also posting daily tour diaries there, and I just finished maybe, it's hard to say things like this, but maybe the coolest stop on the tour, which was in Auburn, Alabama. And if you told me that the coolest stop on the tour so far would be in Auburn, Alabama. I probably would not have believed you, but I had two amazing days there. I did a poetry reading one night, and I was interviewed with live music, and my friend Patrick McCurry set some of my poems to music on the second night, and I met all of these amazing people who were there, and uh, it was just an incredible experience. A lot of the evidence from that is online as well at jasoncrane.org, including a full recording of the poetry reading and By tomorrow, I think, July 3rd, you'll be able to hear the interview that was done if you're interested. So head over to jasoncrane.org for all of that. A little bit more housekeeping. This tour could really use your support. So if you've been thinking that you might like to kick in a little bit, you can go to thejazzsession.com slash tour. And there's a couple ways to support. One is to make a one-time donation and get the thank you gifts that come with that. And by the way, another batch of postcards is going out in the morning. You can also become a member of the show, and that is a recurring donation, either monthly or yearly, depending on which plan you choose, and it can be as little as $110 a year or as little as 10 bucks a month. So please go to thejazzsession.com slash tour and choose one of those ways to support the tour. Another cool thing that people have been doing, which uh, takes a little bit of the expense out of my travel, is buying a book for my Kindle. Uh, Maybe you're already a member and you want some other way to contribute, or you've already contributed to the tour and you're looking for some other thing to kick in. That's a great way to do it. 
believe me, I am reading all of the books that people buy me because I spend a lot of time on buses. I'm going to spend a fair amount of the month of July here in New Orleans and then take August off from the tour so I can hang out with my kids. And then in September, I'll be back at it again, probably in the Southwest first, I think, like, and in Texas. That's my intention. So September, I'll be out again, and I'm just figuring out exactly which way to go first. But I think it'll be the Southwest. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, and as I mentioned, jasoncrane.org is where you'll find poems and poetry readings and daily tour diaries, photos from the tour. It's been uh, just such a joy to be out and about in the United States of America. Hope to get to Canada, too, toward the end of the year and uh, all up the West Coast. It's just, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm so excited. It's, it's better than I ever imagined. Today's interview is uh, one of two that are left that I recorded in New York before I headed out on the tour. This one is with saxophonist Brandon Wright. He's got a new CD out called Journeyman, and from it, let's hear Shapeshifter. My guest is the saxophonist Brandon Wright. He's got a new album called Journeyman on Positone Records. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for coming over. My pleasure. Uh, let's talk, maybe start with the title even. Uh, you know, Journeyman kind of implies uh, a certain amount of work already being put in, but a recognition that you're that you're somewhere on the path between the beginning and whatever the end is, and in jazz there doesn't really seem to be one. Can you talk about why you chose the title and, and kind of where you see yourself in that, that path? Sure. Um, that was... A title that actually came from producer Mark Free. We were brainstorming what we wanted to do for the second record, and I came up with the idea of I wanted to do material that had really been uh, reflective of my last six years here in New York City. I moved in in the winter of 2006, 
So just in conversation, I said, you know, I want this to be sort of the tale of my journey. And then immediately Mark said, journeyman. And uh, I had been called that before, just a few years ago, just people asking me uh, what I do for work and describing all the different gigs. And someone, this is probably three years ago, in the studio said, oh, you're a journeyman tenor man. And that that kind of stuck with me. And, you know, when Mark came up with that title, I was like, yeah, let's, let's go with that. And, um, you know, some, some reviews have already come in and they're talking about that I'm not giving myself enough credit because journeyman could just be someone with adequate skill that's apprenticed with someone and is out there just trying to work. So that's not really, um, for listeners out there, that's not really what I'm trying to convey. It's more of the story of how I got to where I am today, you know, moving to New York City. I'm from New Jersey, but even still to make the move and now you're in the pool, talent pool with everybody. Uh, it's a pretty daunting and sometimes overwhelming idea to now be in the same talent pool with people like Chris Potter, uh, Joe Lovano, Donnie McCaslin, Mark Turner. And, you know, now here's the new guy. And when you first move, I think just to survive, if you want to be playing music full time, you learn to be as versatile as possible. So that meant being able to play big band swing as much as it meant to be able to sit in with a rock band and pull out a King Curtis style solo, um, to be able to double, to be able to, you know, I also play flute, clarinet, um, being able to sight read all that, all those skills were kind of brought to me when I went to the University of Miami. I thought I was trained pretty well. So I felt confident that moving to New York, I could kind of rely on my training to, to get work. So that was really the first goal before even becoming an artist was I just wanted to be able to work. It's interesting that just the word journeyman 
the first thing it made me think of when I saw the title, it really reminded me of my grandfather who, uh, he worked at, although he was a saxophone player, he worked at GE his whole life and he started as an apprentice and then a journeyman. And then, and it, it kind of brought to mind that idea of there being acknowledged stages in the building of a, of a craft or an art. And you've also done, you know, in your career and you just alluded to it, you've, you've done a fair amount of sideman work with established players, with people whose names everyone would know. And it, in some ways, that's a bit of a throwback way to go about things. Uh, I mean, it's a way that kind of harkens back to how it used to happen in some ways more than how it happens now. Absolutely. Uh, I was just thinking about this, that I feel very lucky to have had a chance to work with people like Fred Wesley, Chuck Mangione, Doc Severinsen, that it's a little different. I kind of caught them at the very end of their careers. I'm not saying some of them are finished, but it wasn't in their heyday when they were working all the time and you were on the road half the year. It certainly isn't like that. But I do feel that I've learned lessons and acquired certain skills or even just through osmosis being around them have, it's certainly helped me develop my own concepts and philosophy of how I want to perform music and, um, just even in the presentation of how I bring a quartet, quintet, whatever the format is, uh, when you start to play with artists like that that have toured the world, they're in some aspects entertainers as well as artists and musicians. You start to see what works and what doesn't work. And it definitely, you know, has helped me get further along with this career, this journey, it's those kinds of experiences that are starting to help me become more of an individual. Yeah. And there's definitely a threat. I mean, you might say that, you know, Chuck Mangione, Fred Wesley and Doc Severinsen have nearly nothing in common, but there's definitely a thread that runs between them. They were all at one point part of extremely popular acts. I mean, Doc for years was on the Tonight Show and people saw him every single night on the most watched show in nighttime television. And of course, Chuck had a hit that, as he always says, put all his kids through college. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Fred with James Brown. I mean, those guys were all at one point part of a level of fame that was way beyond what the average, you know, brass player in their all three cases usually, usually sees. And I wonder, did you, you, you talked about the presentation. Can you say a little more about how you, how you put on your own shows now in light of what you learned from those three guys and your experiences in their bands? I think the most important thing that I took from them is connecting with the audience, how just the artist as a person is relating to them on stage to make them feel that they are part of this experience. And it's not just this presentation of music where here's the music, we're just going to play it, Maybe a title will be announced, but we're not really going to tell you anything about it. So it could just be, this song is called Foghorn, and then we just play it, and then we go on to the next song. I've seen that so many times in recent years, and that was frustrating to me. And just seeing Chuck, Fred, Doc especially. Doc Severinsen is the most gregarious of the three. And you can see his improvisational abilities in just interacting with people and all the time he had with Johnny Carson certainly worked in his favor. And 
he had you know, the people in the palm of his hands before he even played a note just by saying, how's everyone doing? <laughs> now, I don't take it to that extreme yet. I mean, I'm not going to show up wearing pastel colors in a suit or, you know, Doc definitely had a flair with fashion. But I think just getting people feeling comfortable with me that we're going to have a good time. I'm going to present the music in a way that uh, is telling a story of my life. I like most of my songs have something to do with an experience that happened in my life, whether it's positive or frustration or difficulty. That's usually where uh, ideas for music that I want to write comes from. So I'm willing to share just about everything, be completely vulnerable and tell my complete story and not really hide anything from the audience. And I really have found that that in recent gigs has brought people closer to the music and me. People want to hear more. They are enjoying the entire experience, not just as me as a saxophone player or as a storyteller on the microphone. Not that I go into elaborate stories, but just the combination of those things really helps get the music across that I can relate to anyone, whether they know a lot about jazz, it's the first time they're hearing it. To some people, jazz is still a scary word and they don't know what to make of it, especially if there's no vocals. There's nothing to hold on to with words, so it's all instrumental. But it seems to be working. I Something I've found recently in the past year and I'm excited to see where I can just take that. But I could play into a room where I maybe I only know 10 people. And let's say it's a club like Smalls that holds like 70. Maybe I only know half the room. But it's that other half, just by telling the story, making them feel comfortable with me as a person, when it comes to the music, they're there for the entire ride. Which is hilarious. If, uh, if you were a singer-songwriter and you just told that, anecdote that you just told everyone would say right yes of course you talk about what the song's about that's kind of how it works and in jazz it seems like we're only just many people are only just waking up to the idea well actually i think they used to know this idea and it went away and i hope it's coming back this idea of actually trying to connect to people and telling them what songs are about i mean you have like i was really surprised even in the press materials for this record even the press materials are very you know kind of soul exposing and you know they talk about tunes like illusions of light you know being about a breakup and it's not the kind of thing that usually comes in a press release but i was happy to see it because it's it means you're an actual person who's had real life experiences i mean that's to me that's what this cd and even just future performances i i have no problems exposing that part of my life because i want people to have experienced the human element of music and expression and why hide. Okay. So everyone goes through a breakup at some point. It's, I mean, that particular one, yeah, it did a number on me. It was enough to make me want to write a song, but I was proud of the material that came out through it. So I'd rather let people know where it came from and they can, hopefully that makes them enjoy the music more. It allows me to really present the song the way I want to, that I can conjure up, you know, almost like a method actor. When I play that song, I have to, even when we were in the studio, I had to ask for like 30 seconds 
let me just get in this zone, think about that experience, fill my own body with a feeling or emotion, and then play. So rather than stifling that, just let people know this is what the song is about, and and then express through through the instrument. Yeah, it's kind of like that. I think it was Ben Webster who said he won't play ballads if he doesn't know the words. And that's, it feels like that same idea. Like if Absolutely. I, if I'm not telling a story, I can't, how do I connect with the music? Can you, uh, talk about the, the three people who join you on this record? It's a really a ridiculous band. Yeah, we have some of my favorite musicians in the world who I'm very lucky to have them come into the studio as well as play with me. Throughout New York City, we have on piano Dave Kokoski, bass is Boris Kozlov, and on drums Donald Edwards. And I met them through playing with the Mingus Big Band, which I've been a part of for over five years. And being a part of that ensemble really gave me access to these guys a lot faster than if I was not part of this group. I mean, it was really very fortunate circumstance that I got involved with the Mingus Big Band within about a year of moving here. And will you tell that story? Sure. That's uh <laughs> I like telling that story. Well, when I first heard the Mingus Big Band, I was a senior in high school, and at that time jazz was relatively new, but you're kind of geeking out on oh, I got to get every issue a downbeat and every Every CD and recording I can can get my hands on, I was immersing myself in the music, and I kept seeing in Downbeat Magazine and these readers and critics polls, Mingus Big Man would always be at the top. So during a Christmas break of my senior year of high school, my friend and I go into the city, and at the time they were still playing at Fez. And it just blew me away, that ensemble, being that close to them, I mean, I liked the environment we were in. Uh, every person was an incredible soloist, as well as just the energy of Charles Mingus's music being translated. Uh, 
into these 14 or 13 musicians. It was this huge sound, this huge giant ball of energy, kind of raw and exciting at the same time. And I just knew right then, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but if I continue down this path of becoming a jazz musician, I have to be a part of this ensemble. So now let's fast forward to 2006, and I was playing corporate job in a suit and tie in Kearney, New Jersey, which was close to West Orange, which is where Cecil's Jazz Club is. And after my gig, it was a Friday night, I stopped in the club, and Michael Carvin was playing with this quartet, and in the front line was Abraham Burton, you know, a mainstay of the Mingus Big Band, who I have seen play in that ensemble, you know, many times. And I just, at the set break, I introduced myself. I just said, hi, I'm Brandon Wright. He seemed to know who I was, which was surprising because I'd only been in town maybe six months. Maybe thought I was somebody else. Anyway, we get to talking. I asked him if he was still playing with the Mingus Band. He said he was going to be there this Tuesday. You should come, come by and sit in. Meanwhile, he's never heard me play a note. <laughs> I'm, for all I know, I'm just a guy off the street in a suit and tie. Like, who? I mean, I, I had the quiet confidence that I was ready for that opportunity. And maybe in some way, the, the subtle power of suggestion of just bringing up the Mingus band created this opportunity to come by. And then he offered, he offered me to sit in or bring your horn. I'll get you on the list and I'll introduce you to Sue. So he's doing all this for me. He's never even heard me play anything. Anyway, I'm really excited for the news. Can't wait for Tuesday. Now they're playing at the Iridium. Show up for the second set. I have my horn. I have no idea how this is going to go down. Abraham's there. We talk for a little bit. And he goes, oh, here's Sue. Let me introduce you. He introduces me to Sue Mingus and gives me all these compliments. You know, he's a badass tenor player, you know, killing... I don't even remember everything, but it was like this list of outrageous compliments he was giving me, yet he has never heard me play a note. I don't even know. I've talked to him about this recently, and I said, I don't even know if I would do this for somebody. So here he is, introducing me to Sue, giving me all these compliments. He leaves, Sue and I just start talking. He didn't even say, this is Brandon Wright, he has his horn, you know, can he sit in? It was just, here's this tenor player. He leaves, Sue and I are chit-chatting for a while. I don't even remember what we were talking about. But there was something in that moment, I guess I made her feel comfortable about me. And she says, if Abraham says you can play, tell him I said it's okay for you to sit in. I want to hear you play. So there was no... At any point in that conversation was it brought up by him or myself that I want to sit in. It all became her idea, which is probably the most perfect situation it could be. And I sat in with the band... And I had a chance to solo. Things went pretty well. I don't even really remember that much because we're talking about something that happened five and a half years ago. But it, even that was an exciting moment and people in the band were approving then. But the funny story is about three weeks later, 
I showed up and introduced myself to Sue, and she had no idea who I was. Because <laughs> here I am, she seemed very excited and happy that I sat it in. I'm like, oh, I'm in. I'm going to show up again in three weeks. Just kind of slowly integrate myself into the group by repetition and just familiarity of who I am. She had no idea who I was again. So now it was starting <laughs> over again. I didn't have to go through that whole introduce you to Sue, let's have another small talk conversation. Abe was able to just push me back on the stage. and I did that a handful of times, kept giving Sue my card. And I remember I was still living at my parents' house at the time because this was all within the first year of moving home. I got an email asking if I would play tenor sax. It was on Halloween of 2006 in the first tenor chair. And... You know, I just was like jumped out of my seat practically. I couldn't believe this was happening. A goal that I had set for myself many years ago before I even went to college was finally going to come true. And that was a really fun night. On the second set, someone requested goodbye pork pie hat. And I had a chance to perform that for the first time. I mean, you're always a little bit nervous, but it's, I guess when you've, gone through music school and you've trained when those opportunities come I just try to relax and be like this is I've kind of trained myself for this moment so just enjoy it and ever since then I've been part of the band And tell me about this rhythm section, this, the three guys, what makes them a special fit for you? Well, first of all, as a pianist, Dave Kokoski is just incredible. I re- as an accompanist, soloist, interpreter of my music, there just seems to be this mutual understanding. He just, I, whatever music I put in front of him, he just knows how to make it sound ten times better than I could have ever imagined it to be. And he's definitely a modern uh, accompanist in terms of his harmonic vocabulary, but he also knows how to complement what I'm doing. At the same time, he can make me really reach and stretch for things, and I'm also very comfortable that whatever I put out in terms of how I'm soloing, he will find a way to make it work. Whatever note choice it is, he just has incredible ears, sensitive, uh, responsive musician who is also, as a soloist, extremely exciting. And I usually try to go before him because <laughs> it is very hard to follow a Dave Kokoski piano solo if you let that man loose (laughs) he knows he knows how to take you on a ride if you're really listening and he'll go for it on every solo on every song we play 
So that's the short story with Dave. And the first time we got to play was one of my very first leader gigs. I was able to to work my way into the Katano. This is back in 2007. And first first time as a leader, I got a gig in a, a very nice room with a guarantee. And I knew what I could pay the guys. And I just figured, what the hell? Let me see if I can get guys from the Mingus band. So I asked Dave, and he said yes just on that. So that's when I knew the association of the Mingus band was valuable. And also, well, all three of these guys are in the Mingus big band. So you have Boris Kozlov on bass. You know, huge sound. Another guy who's just able to interpret what I have on the page and compliment what's happening. He's, he's someone that has tremendous uh, virtuosic chops, abilities on the bass, but also knows how to play the supporting role and not get in the way. Plus has a very wide beat, which is also why Donald Edwards and to me, why I think Donald and Boris work so well together Something that I really like to have in a rhythm section, especially the drum and bass hookup, is a very wide quarter note beat. Say what you mean by that? What I mean by that is that every quarter note, the value of each quarter note is as held out as long as it possibly could from beat to beat. Which not everybody does. Everyone has, everyone has different preferences. But what I noticed and playing with them, or people like them, it doesn't have to be them specifically, but that wider beat allows me to really extend the length of my notes uh, that much longer, which is really, when you're looking at time, is not that long, but that tiny little fraction of extra length, to me, adds more momentum, a little bit more stability. I find I can... By playing my eighth note slightly more straighter than swung, adds this forward motion, and it still swings. It still has that feeling of swing, but that modern saxophone phrasing of someone like Michael Brecker plays that way. I just naturally tend to gravitate towards that rhythmic feel, and to have this kind of this big cushion, this open space that every quarter note I could fit in as much sound, feeling, space, fill it or not fill it. But to me, that that creates a lot of excitement and wants me, inspires me the most. I find that if, if the hookup between the bass and the drums is not there where every beat is really locked in, it tends to box me in a little bit because I, I can notice in that that time that I feel slightly stifled when if that hookup is not there the way I want to phrase the way I like to have my time feel because I think groove is so important in this music and maybe that's because I play a lot of rock and funk too that that I gravitate towards that but having an extremely strong time feel in the rhythm section with a solid groove is the most fun for me to improvise around.
the repertoire on this album it includes tunes of your own it includes some standards and it also includes uh some surprising choices of pearl jam and oasis tunes that you kind of rework and uh, what is the what does the song choice kind of say about where you're where you're at now and your approach to to what speaks to you in terms of uh, a piece of music in terms of the, the covers yeah it either or, yeah it, or anything but particularly i guess it makes most sense in the covers because your own your own tunes you wrote so well the i guess we'll start with the the covers again this was an idea f- from producer mark free which we did on the first record he he suggested doing some kind of pop tune or non-jazz standard and I guess at that time, this was like 2009, that was the the death of Michael Jackson. That was the suggestion, try to find a Michael Jackson tune to put on the record. Or if not Michael Jackson, maybe Stevie Wonder, other people have done The Beatles or Earth, Wind & Fire, James Taylor. And I tried searching for music in that genre, but I was having difficulty connecting with it. As much as I love Michael Jackson, I felt that the way the material was presented, it, I couldn't think of a better way or an original way to do it that that was going to make people think, oh, that was a clever original arrangement. So, so I started looking with the help of modern technology of iTunes started just typing in band names. I started thinking about, well, what was the music that I listened to growing up? In my early teenage years, especially before the saxophone was really ever a consideration other than just this hobby that I played in the concert bands, middle school or early high school. And Pearl Jam popped up in the, the search engine, Stone Temple Pilots. And it got me thinking that would be more of a personal statement to do an arrangement of these songs that are part of my childhood. So it started on the first record with Stone Temple Pilots. And then this time I wanted to do two covers, which in both of these covers were put together probably two weeks before I went to the studio. They were like the missing link of the album. But sometimes under those time constraints, I can get very focused and churn it out but still make it feel that it was inspired and not forced. So we have Pearl Jam's Better Man, which I almost did on the first record, but for whatever reason, the Stone Temple Pilots tune was just sticking with me more. So when I listened to it again, it reminded me of just like being in summer camp and when Vitology came out and Better Man being played all the time and I'm so terrible with lyrics, and I remember always having this misunderstanding that he was saying, can't find the butter, man. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't quite understand the song. But but as an adult, I listened to the lyrics, and it had a very different meaning to me. So a combination of the lyrics with the melody and how the song was constructed, that was the, the reasoning behind taking... Pearl Jam tune. Plus, I want to create this bridge for the listeners of my generation to make jazz more accessible to them without necessarily uh, performing to the least common denominator or really dumbing the music down. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. 
And it is very much modern jazz, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock influenced harmony, which is the way I've been taught to write, mostly through school of Ron Miller when I went to the University of Miami and taking his harmonic concepts and making it my own so I can extract the melody and then abandon the rest of the arrangement, try to not even listen to the original recording and adopt the melody as my own. To me in composition, that's always been the hardest thing is coming up with a good melody. So if the melody is already established for me to sit down at the piano and figure out the harmonic landscape will be a lot quicker once the melody is already hashed out. first listened to this record without looking at the song titles i just put it in and when that came on the whole time i was thinking man i i know this song but i can't think of what it is it was driving me crazy <laughs> like I, this sounds so familiar what standard is this and then i finally flipped it over and realized what it was i was stunned it i mean you would never think of that well not to mention it, it's interesting that idea about creating a bridge um because the although the source material is you know from closer to our generation we're although we're quite a few years apart in age but i, I you know i was younger when better man came out too and uh mm-hmm. although the source material is kind of from somewhere around our generation the the arrangement isn't and i i wonder about that bridging idea because i sometimes think it's not the it's not the melodies that make jazz difficult for people to figure out it's almost everything else like it's the the sound of swing which i think a lot of people don't really relate to and the idea of improvisation and what's happening when um so i sometimes wonder and i'm not uh, i'm not trying to get into an argument about making things modern but i sometimes wonder about that idea of of playing tunes from more modern times as as if somehow that in fact is going to make people who know that music find everything else around it like palatable or understandable um i don't know do you, i don't do you have any other thoughts on that i mean obviously it sounds like you do so. well when i when i approach these modern standards these alternative rock covers from the 90s that just seems that time period is something i'm going to continue to explore and i hope to continue to add more arrangements like that to the book i think as an audience member i'm not trying to think well what chords are they going to understand or what harmonies are they not going to understand? It's not so much about that. I feel in how I write, it's more having these catchy melodies and what's happening underneath could be very complex, but they don't need to, 
to know that as long as the execution is relaxed and comfortable. And also, what I love about this rhythm section I have is that whatever I conceive at the piano with the basic chords, once I give it to them, breathe this whole new life to it. I remember when we, we rehearsed for this recording, and I had a feeling that both Wonderwall and Better Man would work, but to actually have everyone interacting and putting in their artistic genius into these arrangements really just lit me up. I, I just felt so proud that the small idea I had to take this tune and make it into a jazz arrangement and that it's working is so exciting for me. And playing these songs is something I look forward to in the set because, because I, I just have a feeling that people that un knew these radio hits, if they didn't quite get what I was doing before, I feel like this really brings them in to see that, oh yeah, like he, he, he was, part of this music too he's not just someone who listens to jazz exclusively and i think that becomes more it goes back to that conversation earlier of connecting with the audience mm -hmm. i feel like that those moments especially in the first record when i did the stone temple pilot song even though i didn't really know what i was doing yet and that was the first attempt when i played it live i could just see the difference in the audience response. All, all I would have to say is on the mic, you know, does anyone remember the band, the Stone Temple Pilots? And people would get excited without even playing the arrangement yet, but just that I was playing something familiar to them that wasn't an old jazz standard and wasn't just an original composition of mine that they're hearing for the first time, but sort of this happy medium that it's putting my own personal stamp on a song that they're familiar with, but rearranging it in such a way that it sounds like it's one of my songs, but they can still hold on to the nostalgia of, you know, alternative rock bands from the nineties and, and maybe understand my, where I'm trying to come from creatively and artistically. Cause there's now we're sharing something together as opposed to just throwing a, an original tune at them or, playing an old standard that maybe they've heard some people probably the older audience members would be more familiar with it but i'm trying to build an audience a fan base of every age group I and mean, i definitely have some loyal fans that are more in my parents age and i do have some fans and of my age but i think that doing this specifically has already brought some more attention to people of my generation that when I'm meeting people outside of musical circles, maybe that'll be the first thing that I'll, if they're interested in what I do and they hear that I'm a jazz musician, that's probably the first thing that I would play for them. Can you say something about ballad playing?
probably something that took a long time for me to really appreciate and have respect for when I was not that I'm that old I'm, I just turned 30 this year but in my late teens early 20s to me when I would go here jazz performed or even when I was performing it in whatever ensemble I was in to me, it was all about the fast-burning tunes, feeling that up-tempo energy, seeing the virtuosity of players or being allowed to do that myself through just speed and technique and acrobatics. And when it would come to the ballad, I would be so bored and just couldn't wait for the next burning swing tune to come. But as I've matured and gone to more performances, I, I had noticed that the ballad was, and even established artists in masterclass interviews would talk about the real measure of, a, of an artist or a jazz musician is how they play a ballad. Because you are the most exposed. Everything is very slow. The quarter notes are held out for a very long time. The chord changes are moving slower. You have to play the melody slower. So what's really being exposed is your tone, your phrasing, your timing has to be a lot more exact because you almost feel like you're free floating through this, through this long, just these long, measures going by as opposed to something that's moving a lot quicker and maybe you can finesse your way to kind of skate through some changes but now here's every chord change that you have to navigate through plus now you're playing a melody because it's so slow and most of these ballads do have lyrics have found it's important to if you're not if, if I don't know the entire song, all the lyrics, that at least I know what the story is about. And I try to really think about what that story is, whether it's something of joy or sadness or a lost love, whatever, and put that, try to, again, going back into almost like a method actor, really think about the emotional feeling behind that song and become extremely vulnerable and my interpretation for each ballad, depending on what I'm playing, will be different. But I find that that's, that's the best way for me to really share feelings and emotions through the saxophone with the audience. And it's a very special moment for me in any set that I play. I try to have it, it usually one per set and I try to vary 
the repertoire, and I'm always trying to learn more ballads. But many times people have come up to me and said, that's, that was my favorite part of the set, was the ballad. And when I noticed that being a trend, that became something that I thought was more important for me to get better at. And it's something... I don't know if it's something that you can practice as much as living life and just having having more life experiences and bringing that into the music as well as just being more patient. I On ballads, I, I just tend to take a less is more approach and rather than fill up the space with a lot of notes, try to play more lyrically. I know that for about the last year or so, you've been taking uh, classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Will you tell folks what that is and the classes you've been taking and how that's affecting Sure, that's... Although you might think it's completely unrelated, for the last year or so, I've been taking improv comedy classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Training Center, which is different. A lot of people think that improv comedy is stand-up comedy, which it's not. It's... It's basically doing improvised sketches based on a suggestion, very much a team-focused uh, entertainment, form of entertainment. And about a year and a half ago, I was getting a little bit complacent in my career, where things were going, and... I was looking to shake things up and get out of my comfort zone. And a, f- a friend of mine had been, had been doing it for a few years and his name is Jonathan Ahrens. I'm not sure if you're familiar, dancing trombone player, but just an incredible entertainer and trombone player. And when he told me that he was taking improv classes, it just seemed like this is something I should check out because as we were talking before with Doc Severinsen and Fred Wesley, Chuck Mangione, this certain element of entertainment and relating to the audience, it just seemed that it was worthwhile to explore. 
And within a few classes, I had already fallen in love with the art form, just completely removing myself from the saxophone and now entertaining and relating to people and entertaining an audience through just me as a person and being able to think on my feet has one made me more comfortable, I think, in public, in public speaking, because it really, some of the scenes that you get involved with will take you out of your comfort zone pretty fast. <laughs> you don't quite know what's coming at you. But the main thing that I, the two main things that I took away with it was one, it made me a better listener because something that, and this is where I started to find parallels is that as a soloist, it's very easy to get up there, no matter how great the rhythm section is, to just get up there and you're going to play all the stuff that you've practiced. You're not really listening to what's going on behind you. Yeah, you're getting some support, but maybe you have an agenda. And a way that I used to play was just, I need to prove myself that I got chops and I understand harmony and that I've... I want to show everybody that I've checked out all these guys and can play like them and still play like myself. And what was happening in the improv scenes is I was almost taking a very similar approach where I would have a funny idea and with my scene partner just try to force this idea upon him and not really listen to what he was saying and I was just like, no, this is, this is where the funny part is. Just follow me. You're along for the ride. And, and they would be contributing and I wasn't listening. And then the scene would go nowhere and I would get these notes of just relax. Let the funny will happen. You just have to react to what your scene partner is saying and listen to them more carefully. And it made me realize this is something that has been told to me since my freshman year of college when I really felt like I needed to show off and be the young hotshot. And I, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that maybe I should take these notes that were given to me in improv and apply it to this musical situation. So I think I was doing it on some level subconsciously, especially when I was playing with really great musicians, like the ones on my record. But I thought about it more and started coming with, up with this idea of no agenda. I don't, I'm not, other than the material that is on the paper, that we're going to play these songs and these are the forms. I'm not going to play anything preconceived or keep some of my stock vocabulary to a minimum and really just trust that the musicians around me are going to make the music sound great and that we'll get to the pinnacle, you know, like this, the climax of a solo naturally. And it doesn't have to be right out of the gate, guns blazing, let's hit them with everything we got. That there can be this natural evolution and to just be patient and that especially in a live setting when you have, you know, if you want to play six choruses on what whatever the song is, you do have that freedom, but you can build on that 
And I just started to notice that I, my ears just opened up to this whole other level. And maybe from the training of improv, where that became like doing brain gymnastics in a way, that being back in an environment that I had been studying and working in for many years, it was almost like the matrix where everything was in slow motion. And I feel that that's become a new, uh, my new philosophy is to just really listen to what's happening around me and react in the moment. Just be in the moment. Don't try to force ideas and whatever happens in that moment is the best choice. Now, when you play with people like Dave Kokoski, Boris, and Donald, it's very easy to do. And even in the studio, I feel like this is the first documentation of me discovering this new, not new approach, it's certainly not innovative, but artistically for me, it's like I feel like I'm taking a stand on this is how I want to play when I'm improvising. I want it to be more of a pure improvisational setting as opposed to just having these licks or things that I want to impress people with. And I think once I started doing that, it started to access my own personal voice. I finally feel for the first time, I'm not saying that I'm there a hundred percent, but I feel like I'm on to something that's more personal and makes, if you want to call it a brand, but more of, I feel like I'm having my own musical identity for the first time. Now it's just starting to get there. And it was really through, through the improvisation classes, just, which is not why I took the classes. I didn't expect to have the, these findings. But it really has changed my life from the teachings of Del Close and being at the training center at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And I still, although I'm not in classes right now, I'm in a practice group. I do some performing and I'm not saying I'm great, but I have my moments and I'm getting better and I enjoy having that as another aspect. But it's, I just couldn't believe that it took notes from an improvisational class to make sense of six years worth of jazz education would have been told to me over and over again that I seem to not be able to understand <laughs> when, when spoken about in musical terms. But now it all of a sudden made perfect sense. And, and to tie it all together, the reason why it made such sense to me is that I remember doing an improv jam session and thinking about the notes that had been given to me in the improv class, especially just relax, listen to your scene partner, and react in the moment. And I remember being called up to do, to do this jam, at, do this scene at the Magnet Theater, where I had been struggling to get a laugh. I mean, I just kept, I didn't really care. I, I was new to the art form and keep going. I took those 10 seconds to remind myself of that, did the scene, and all of a sudden, everything that came out of my mouth got a laugh. And that was really when I saw, realized the importance of listening and being in the moment. And it was, not only was that satisfying, because to me, that is even a bigger rush, because maybe because comedy is so new to me, but to get laughs out of strangers, 
is extremely exciting. And it was right then that I was like, I need to do this from now on when I'm doing improv scenes, but I am taking this and applying it immediately to my musical philosophy. And I'm really excited that I made that discovery and it's something I'm going to continue to work on. My guest is the saxophonist uh, and improv artist, Brandon Wright. And the new, <laughs> the new album is Journeyman uh, on Positone Records. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Yeah, this was really great, Jason. Thanks for coming. That's music from saxophonist Brandon Wright and his album Journeyman. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Madat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Coming to you from New Orleans for the next couple of weeks, few weeks, almost a month. It's amazing. I'm so excited. So please go to thejazzsession.com slash tour and donate to the tour if you can. You can make a one-time donation. You can become a member. You can buy a book for my Kindle. You can do all three, as my friend Tony Attardo did. So that's at thejazzsession.com slash tour and over at jasoncrane.org, the daily tour diaries and photos and poems and recordings of poetry readings and all that good stuff. Okay, 
And now, if you would please, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.